As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to this replay of Ask N.T. Write Anything, where we go back into the archives to bring you the best of the thought and theology of Tom Wright, answering questions submitted by you, the listener. You can find more episodes as well as many more resources for exploring faith at premierunbelievable.com, and registering there will unlock access through the newsletter to updates, free bonus videos, and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now, for today's replay of Ask N.T. Wright Anything. The Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast. Welcome back to the program. It's my pleasure and joy to sit down on a regular basis with Tom. And Tom, we've got another set of questions for you. Tricky one today. Um, Hell and heaven is what we're talking about. And lots of people asking questions specifically about hell. It seems to be weighing on many people's minds. Um, That I think is because it's not just an abstract issue for many people it feels like it comes directly into their world when mm. they know people who are not Christians, who yeah. seem yeah. to have rejected faith, and inevitably look, provokes lots of questions right. for them right. about what happens next. So let's, let's, we'll come to some of those more personal questions in a moment, but let's, let's sort of sketch out your overall thinking on this, this concept of hell. A few questions came in. Um, a Samuel in India asks, what is hell? Is the lake of fire a metaphor? Bob in Orange County says... The traditional view of salvation says that if someone is not a follower of Jesus, they'll spend eternity in hell. What are your thoughts on this? Do you agree? Is there another option? So similar sorts of questions, essentially, is that what we're supposed to mean by hell? A lake of fire, eternal damnation, whatever. Yes. Um, One needs to go back and deconstruct the way in which the modern Western picture has come about. And I've often told the story of how 10 years or so ago I was at a big service in Rome um, sitting next to a a Greek Orthodox Archimandrite and we were in the Sistine Chapel and before the procession and all all the music started we were looking around and he looked at one wall and the other wall there's pictures of Moses over here, pictures of Jesus over here. He said, this I understand and this I understand and then he pointed at the great picture of Christ in majesty sending some people downstairs and bringing other people upstairs and he said that i don't understand that's not Mm. how we do eschatology in greece now it's one of those frustrating moments because then the music started and the procession came (laughs) in and i never got to say okay so will you explain to me how you do but i think we need to remind ourselves that in the western medieval church 
there was a massive development of hell. And you see this not only in Michelangelo, but in Dante, of course, mm. Dante's Inferno, um, where great detailed tour of hell. And what is happening there is a retrieval in some parts of the church of bits of ancient paganism. And I was reading, for quite another reason, one of Plato's dialogues recently, and quite clear that Plato was happy to play along with the idea that those who embraced wisdom or truth or, or whatever, their souls would go upwards into a place of bliss, and those who didn't would miss out and their souls would go to a place of torment. And that is not a, a Christian or a Jewish idea. It's an ancient pagan idea. The Christians uh, are not thinking about where souls are going because basically the idea of uh, a soul and that's the real thing that matters that's platonic that's right. not christian though heavens there are huge debates still rumbling along mm -hmm. and many systematic theologians today say oh no no we've got to put plato and christianity together i'll say be very careful because in my experience plato usually wins when you do that <laughs> um, but it isn't just plato lots of others as well so uh, when we read depending on which translation of the bible you've got the word hell, we have to be very careful. If that immediately conjures up those medieval visions, then distance yourself from that. Okay. This is, I mean, may I just make a general point here mm. because it comes up in my teaching a lot and did just in the class yesterday, um, that where people only speak one language, characteristically English and Americans, um, uh, then it's very easy for them to imagine that this word is a counter which refers to one clear object so that whenever we meet that word that's what it means mm. and as a bible translator i want to say with lots and lots and lots of words words are very slippery things and between language anyone who grows up in central europe speaking four or five languages knows perfectly well that words aren't exactly the same mm. and likewise that they pick up different layers of meaning from what the cultures they've been in so in the modern western world and in the church we were all taught as children yeah there's these two destinations and this is the thing that matters in christianity is you're going to hell heaven or you're going to hell and i want to say the new testament really doesn't see it like that um and whether you go with greek orthodox and say we've got to do it differently it's quite clear in the New Testament we're talking about new creation, new mm -hmm. heavens and new earth. Mm -hmm. And the real toing and froing in the Bible is between heaven and earth, not between heaven and hell. And Paul says in Ephesians 1 that God's design is to sum up in Christ all things in heaven and on earth. And that summing up, that new creation, is the reality. One of the best writers who grappled with this um, was one of C.S. Lewis's early works, The Great Divorce, mm. where he has, okay, this sharp opposition between hell and heaven, but he, for him hell is this thin, insubstantial place which mm. consists almost entirely of denial. Mm. It's denial of goodness, denial of the goodness of creation, denial of the goodness of oneself, so that all that is left is a grumble and a moan and something which is as near to nothingness as it could be. And in a sense, because it's all very inwardly focused in it's, that sort of... It's it. inwardly focused, but it's rejecting god the creator mm. and therefore rejecting the wonderful new creation which is more real than the present mm. world and lewis manages in that book to convey this idea of a heaven which is actually a new earth where every blade of grass is so strong that mm. if you walk on it barefoot it'll go straight through yeah, you yeah. etc and that's one way of looking at it different kinds of reality in other words Let's get away from the idea that these are equal and opposite destinations. Right. And particularly, let's get away from the idea, um, which sadly was 
common coin in much medieval Christianity that one of the delights of heaven was contemplating the tortures of the damned. Mm. And, and, and that's, that's there in some ordinary Christian spirituality through to the 19th century. And I think the 20th century has rather mm. ruled that out. Of course, if and when God does justice and mercy for all the earth, we will all celebrate that. And if that means God saying a firm no to anyone and anything that has utterly corrupted themselves and everybody else as best they can, then we should rejoice that God and God's way and God's justice have won the day, but we should grieve over the fact that some who are made in God's image have actually said, I don't want to reflect the creator God into the world. I want to do my own thing, which is, it is about nothingness. It's about denial. It's about saying no rather than saying yes. Is, is that helpful it's as a helpful. starting point? It's a very good starting point. And to, to go on from there, it might be helpful if, if you have any thoughts on some of the predominant different ideas that have been put out by theologians and thinkers about hell. So Jennifer in Louisville Kentucky says what do you believe the Bible teaches about hell for instance there's eternal conscious torment annihilationism or indeed Christian universalism or ultimate reconciliation and Danny in Portland has a similar question asking is there a strong case for annihilationism in the Bible or is eternal conscious torment the only option and also why doesn't the Hebrew Bible make a stronger case for hell seems important maybe to lay it out clearly Um, are humans eternal even if they don't accept eternal life in Jesus. So it's so kind of a whole variety yes, of questions yes, in there. But yes. let's, no, let's start with some of the terminology first. Are, are you familiar with the idea of annihilationism? Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. what do you understand well, that to be? Um, I would understand when people talk about annihilation that this is about saying that those who do not choose to follow Jesus in this life and do not have them themselves transformed by his spirit in this life will find that after this life they don't have an immortal soul which is going on and on and on because immortality according to first timothy is something that only god has and that remains god's gift and so there's a case to be made on that basis and this is basically a denial of platonism a denial of the idea that we all have a soul which pre-existed our bodies and which will post-exist our our death Um, it's a way of saying no that's a greek hellenistic philosophical idea it's not a biblical idea of course and this is another of those linguistic slippages you find the word soul quite frequently but that translates in the new testament the greek word psuche as in psyche or psychedelic or whatever um, but the greek term psuche as spoken by a first century jew would be translating the hebrew word nefesh which actually means the whole person Mm. more what we would call a person than a soul as a disembodied thing so these are typical of the muddles that we get into so back to the eternal conscious torment or the um or or, but Mm. then is the lake of fire a metaphor Mm. well so much of the biblical language is a is, is a web of not entirely consistent metaphors they don't have to be consistent metaphors don't need to be <laughs> you can mix them and it's a way of saying it's something like that and it's something like that but the fact that there's these different pictures alerts us to the fact that these are not sort of chemical labels on the bottle this is what's in this so back to annihilation i think my view some have mistaken my view for annihilation the, the way that i would put it is this I think I say this briefly and surprised by hope, but um, let me spell it out. Mm. That we are made in God's image, and I take that to mean that we are designed 
to stand at the dangerous interface between heaven and earth, reflecting God into the world and reflecting the praises of the world back to God. It's one of the reasons Christian worship matters so much is we're summing up the praises of creation and articulating them. But we are designed to be two-way mirrors like that, Mm. reflecting in both Mm. directions. And we are also called as Christians to stand at the dangerous interface between present and future, that God's new world has broken in in Jesus and by the Spirit, and we are called to be part of that even while our bodies and so much about us is still dirty and dusty with the muck of this world and will one day decay and die. Um, So we're called to be in between people, and that's dangerous and difficult. So dangerous and difficult that often people say, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a God reflector. I don't want to be part of God's future in the present. I'll just live in the present the way it is. And the dangerous thing is that that is a vote to say, I really don't want to be an image bearer. But part of the logic of being an image bearer, because that's what you're made to be, is that if you decide to worship that which is not God, your image bearingness of the true God will corrupt and fracture, distort, and eventually decay entirely. Mm. So that it seems to me possible to hold in one's mind a category which would be of a creature that once was a genuine God reflector, but is now no longer. And again, back to C.S. Lewis in the Mm. Narnia stories, Mm. um, there are some of the talking beasts who choose not to follow Aslan, and they remain as animals, but they're no longer talking animals. Mm. And I think Lewis is saying, it's another metaphor, there is something about being a creature that once was and now isn't. And there's something about that way of telling the story, which is to say, I'm not, I'm not a universalist. The warnings about final loss in mm. the New Testament are so clear mm. that I don't think these are just designed to scare people, etc. Okay. I think these are real. Um, there is the prospect of final loss. Mm. And Paul, Paul himself says, um, I pommel my body and subdue it, lest having mm. preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And if even Paul could say that about himself. It, it, um, so coming back to the labels yeah, because yeah. people often it's helpful let's let's put universalism to one side for the moment but eternal conscious torment annihilationism it strikes me from what you said that there's there's things you're taking possibly from both but you're not committed to either yeah, so yeah. there's a sense in which there could be an eternal nature to this <clears throat> constant sort of becoming of nothing this this this, this, this if you like yes rejection. ongoing i mean part again part of our difficulty with the word eternal yeah, is that we hear it in platonic exactly atemporal and and I think time matters, actually. But um, but then equally annihilation is in the idea, you know, yeah. which, to put it very bluntly, is, is someone ceases to exist if they if they don't yeah. choose yeah. To, to be with Christ. Then um, that, in a sense, it sounds like what you're describing there is is the loss of anything significant in terms of what it means to be yes, human and, yes. and so on. And, and of course, this is difficult because um, the older you get, the more you realize we're actually talking about people that I know and love. Of course, yeah. Um, and if that isn't so for us, then we've got a very small circle of friends, as it were. Um, and so it can never be said in an arrogant way or, uh, as we said in a previous podcast, as though we were playing God and mm. we can decide mm. who's in, who's out. Um, God has got many, many surprises. Um, but I do think that there is the possibility and the reality that those who say, not for me, thank you, in whatever way, not necessarily an explicit rejection of an explicit message, but who see that possibility of opening themselves to the demanding love of God 
and who say, no, not for me, that for them there would be a state of having once been in some strong sense a genuine human and now being that no longer. Some people find that offensive. Mm. Um, it seems well, to me well, that's, we well, have to say I mean, something in the middle there. Without wanting to put Lewis on a, on a par with the Bible here, he did make some, I think, very, in my view, quite quite helpful ways of understanding the, the idea of the gates of hell are locked from the inside, those mm-hmm. sorts of mm-hmm. metaphors. Um when 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 we won't say to god thy will be done god yeah, says yes, thy, thy will, will be, be done, done. Yes, um, yes, it's, yes. it's uh, do, what do you make of that idea that, that hell in that sense is not something imposed upon people yes, but rather something yes. people and, choose and i see this very vividly in matthew chapter 18 with that parable of the unforgiving servant who can't possibly pay the millions mm. that his debt has run up so the master says i forgive you and then he goes out straight away and grabs somebody by the throat and says you owe me 10 pence mm. I, I want it right now or you're in jail and the master hears about it and says, okay, you're in jail until. Right. Yeah. And Jesus then says, scarily, that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you don't forgive your brother mm-hmm. from your heart. Um, and people have said, oh, Jesus can't possibly have said that. But I think the point is this, that, that, that the bit of us, bit is a metaphor, but <laughs> you know what I mean? The bit of us which opens a door to forgive is the bit of us which opens the door to forgiveness. If we shut that door then we shut that door. Um, And I think that's getting at the same point that Lewis was making there. Um, Something psychological, personal going on there. We'll be back with more of your questions in a moment's time. Uh, Ask NT Write is, of course, brought to you by Premier in partnership with SBCK and NT Write Online. And NT Write Online is a great place to find all of Tom's online theology courses taught in person by Tom in video format. Now, the Lord's Prayer is something they're currently focusing on. Uh, It's a brand new course in which Tom will help you to think about the context that informs the Lord's Prayer, the deeper ideas in it you may not have noticed, practical ways that it could help shape your daily spiritual practices. It's it's a prayer we think we know so well, but how well do we actually know it? Uh, Podcast listeners can get this new video course on the Lord's Prayer absolutely free by going to ntwriteonline.org forward slash askntwrite. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I have a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask and He Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash ntwrite. That's premierinsight.org forward slash ntwrite. Thank you.
as you said, this this does have a personal dimension to it. There there are people we know and love, um, and and this idea that we won't share, you know, again, we're using yeah, yeah. picture language, but but eternity with them weighs heavily on many people. Now, I've, I've had two people, interestingly, both in Australia, ask similar questions. I don't know if they're related um, and, and submitted these separately. But uh, firstly, Rusty in Australia says, how can there be no tears in heaven? If there are some members of our family that we dearly love who perish due to their own choice to reject God Um, and follows that up to say in the context of one of your past writings, rethinking the tradition to quote, if God is indeed to put the world to rights and if he has indeed given his human creatures the freedom we sense ourselves to have, including the freedom to reject his will and his way, the eventual judgment will involve the loss of those who have exercised that freedom to their own ultimate cost. And Will on Australia asks a very similar question, saying, how would you advise someone to deal with the deep pain of eternal damnation of a deceased loved one who was full of kindness for their family and community, but could never embrace Christianity because they didn't see it providing strong enough evidence for them to adhere to it with any kind of honesty? In found they fa- in, indeed, they found it led to deeply inhuman ways of living. Well, uh, as I said before, and that's a great question, uh, as I said before, the, um, the way in which many people have been totally put off Mm. by what they have seen in the church is uh, an utter scandal. And as one looks back through church history, of course, there have been many periods of history when you look at what the church had become and it was thoroughly corrupt and politicized. Mm. And, you know, it it, it is a miracle that the church is still there, (laughs) granted all the things that have gone on. But, of course, the church has always really been at its heart the very ordinary men and women who've said Mm. their prayers and loved their neighbors. Um, And uh, if people haven't seen that, then that is a real shame and reflects extremely badly on the Christians who they have seen. So that's back to God knows that person's heart. And the way the question was asked was in such a way as to what a fine person, what a fine example of Christianity. Mm. And the reason they rejected explicit faith was understandable. Mm. And I want to say, God knows that person's heart. I don't, um, nor Mm. does the person who's asking the Mm. question. And God will do the right thing. And I think that sense of utter trust in God, which also comes through then to the first of those questions, um, that ultimately, uh, it's very interesting in the New Testament, we come to the idea of death and a funeral and so on, wanting to be told that we will be reunited with those whom we've loved and lost. And I think part of the renunciation involved in the gospel, which is really hard, is to say God demands our 100% allegiance and God will give us whatever he wants us to have with that. And just as there are many people for whom, as we say, life hasn't turned out as they hoped, nevertheless, God loves them and cherishes them and will one day wipe away all the tears of disappointment and frustration, etc., from their eyes. So we just have to believe that if God is as we know him to be in Jesus, then he will, in fact, wipe away tears from our eyes. And I think the fact that God will do that, it, it doesn't say... God will do it in the way we want or God will give us the kind of comfort we want. Mm. There will be a layer of comfort which will be beyond what we can presently imagine because I mean, we have to face the fact that all our language about the future, as I've said often enough, is like a set of signposts pointing into a fog um, mm. and we can tell the truth as best we can but the signpost isn't a photograph of what we'll find when we go through the fog and, right. and end up there. Yes. They, so the difference and, and, between the and, signpost and the reality is really rather important. 
I mean, this, this question from Musdi, I think, reflects for me when they say, how can there be no tears in heaven if some members of our family we dearly love perish yeah, because yeah, of their choice to yeah. reject him? I suppose I think a lot of images, and, and I hear many Christians, devout Christians saying this, I'm so looking forward to being reunited with X, Y, and Z, dear, dearly, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and in a sense, yes, for those who, 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 are, who are in Christ, there, there is that sense. But it, it strikes me if that's all that heaven is, a sort of reunion with yeah, friends yeah, and yeah, family, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, we, we, it's a sub-biblical yeah. view oh, of, of Oh, heaven. very much so. And, and I mean, there's, there's two things going on there, and you would expect me to tease this out at this point. <laughs> Curiously, the Bible isn't very interested in where people are immediately after death. Mm. If that was the name of the game, then the New Testament is very misleading. Because there's only half a dozen passages which even touch on that. There's Jesus saying to the brigand, today you'll be with me in paradise. But we know that three days later, according to Luke, Mm -hmm. he's back again. Mm. And he's not bringing that brigand with him. (laughs) So what happened to him? Well, paradise is the holding place, the temporary Mm. resting place before the resurrection. John 14, in my father's house are many dwelling places, but Jesus then says he will come back, he will return, and John makes it quite clear throughout the gospel that that what happens after death is only temporary before the eventual new creation. And Paul's saying in First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, our desire is to be um, away from the body and at home with the Lord. But then he says that there is coming a great judgment and then there will be the resurrection. Mm. So that the the temporary at home with the Lord, like in Philippians 1, he says, my desire is to depart and be with the Messiah. That's the two-stageness of the Christian hope, which most Western Christians still stumble over. And I you know, I've been banging on about this for a long time, and many people I know have got it. Many others simply haven't, and mm. they flick back into the default mode of the going to heaven thing, which is ultimately Platonism. Yeah. Just to finish up with this question by, by Rose yeah, D, yeah. Um, granted that we may, once we're in the new creation, look back on things with a very different perspective mm. to, to, to how we see things now. Nonetheless, Right now, that person is is feeling a pain for those who have reject chosen to reject or yeah. appear to have, at this point at least have rejected that so what 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 might be your practical advice to someone who simply is just grieved for the fact that many people they know loved ones are okay. not following yeah. Um, yeah. Christ yeah I mean obviously to hold such people in prayer um, and I find for myself within my tradition, and as many, many Christians have done, that the breaking of bread, the communion, the Eucharist, call it what you will, is a moment when we can come with our hopes and fears and we kind of lay them on the altar and we receive back the broken bread, which is Jesus' own life. And as we, something about the empty hands which are stretched out to receive, which are saying, I have put my hopes and desires and dreams on the altar. And there they are, and what I get back is what I get back. And there's a humility about that, which doesn't take the pain away, but kind of relocates it. It does something different. I found as a pastor again and again, some of the real difficulties when you wrestle with people facing real problems, to go through that discipline of saying, here they are, and now God gives me back what he gives me back. And in the light of that, I can go and sit with them again and weep with them again and pray with them again. Um, and that that's, I don't think we should expect God to solve all our problems overnight and say, okay, here's the answer, mm. so that's quite all right. But I do think one can in prayer entrust people to the care of God. 
I'm not saying that one should pray that somebody who has explicitly rejected Jesus in this life should have a second chance hereafter. Many people have toyed with that mm. idea. I'm saying that one can perfectly reasonably say, Lord, so-and-so's life is bound up with mine, and I have loved them, and I would love to believe that you love them as well. Um, please, can I leave them with you? And maybe that's a discipline of prayer yeah. which will take years in some cases. But... Um, like many other things, it's a modern idea that if there is a God, he should sort out all our right. problems straight away. Most of the ancient Christians would never have thought like that. Let's just turn with the last five minutes we've got to the other label that we've we mm. raised earlier on, Christian universalism or ultimate mm. reconciliation. Um, two similar-ish questions, uh, interestingly similar names as well. Josh in Boston, first of all, says... Um, first of all, thank you, Tom, for your incredible work. It's been so helpful in my faith. My question is, um, I've always assumed the evangelical teaching I received was mostly correct, but I began reading certain ancient fathers, Gregory of Nyssa being a good example, and they seem to think that salvation is universal. Would love to hear your thoughts on that. And then we've been talking about C.S. Lewis, who, of course, was a great mm -hmm. fan of George MacDonald. Mm -hmm. And Joshua in San Diego says... Um, I was curious as to your thoughts on a hopeful universalism similar to that of George MacDonald. If, as you have indeed described so beautifully, it is God's intention to sum up all things on heaven and on earth and himself and wishes to free all creation from its bondage, would this not at the very least lead you to hope in the reconciliation of all? Yeah, I understand that. I mean, it's interesting that Lewis himself, having made George MacDonald quite a guru, didn't go that route. Mm. Um, and Lewis is quite clear that he is sticking with some sort of ultimate um, both and there, rather mm. than saying all goes together into universalism. I mean, as I read the New Testament, uh, both the Gospels and Paul, it just seems to me that a universalism has to dodge some of the really tough issues. I ran into this recently rather uncomfortably when I reviewed David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament, and I was asked to review it, and so I did, and I was particularly struck with the way in which he, who is obviously a universalist, um, was twisting and turning to avoid saying what the text actually says at certain points which do see um, the possibility of whether you call it final loss or something. And uh, clearly he wanted to say that um, the idea of any sort of loss or hell is a Western invention going back to Augustine rather than in the Bible. But it does seem to be there in the Bible mm. unless you really are going to distort it. Mm. So that for me is is kind of an anchor. But then I do think, as we've been exploring before, we have to say that our pictures of heaven and hell as equal and opposite are simply wrong. Mm. That's not how the Bible sees it. And that it's a major issue for us to unthink the mental habits of the last two or three centuries of Western Christianity and to think in terms of a new creation in which God will sum up all things in heaven and earth, but within which there will be no place for, as the book of Revelation says, for people who love and make lies, for people mm. who are opposed to the truth, for people who are implacably saying no to, to God's will. And that's part of the dignity of being human, it seems to me, that God will say, as you said before, um, okay, having made you in my image, I, I'm, you sadly seem not to worship me, and so you are becoming progressively less and less human. Um, and it is only those who are reflecting my image who will be welcome in the final new creation. 
unless you're going, there are easy ways out, like John Hick, last generation, would say that, that in eternity God will have an infinite number of chances to present the gospel right. to such people again. To which I think the New Testament would say the revelation of God's self in Jesus was the ultimate revelation. So and if you deny that, then you've, that was the last I, I chance. I mean, what's often implicit in any kind of universalism or hopeful universalism is, is the idea of post-mortem yeah, ability yeah, to, yeah. To, to be presented again and to yeah. be won over by yeah. the love of God and so on. So do you, do you simply say, I don't think that's there? Well, I don't see that at all in the New Testament. Right. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm old-fashioned about this. I think the New Testament's actually the, the gold standard here mm. and the teaching of Jesus within that. And by the way, many of Jesus' warnings about the danger of loss are very specific to uh, political and social warnings, so that in Luke 13, when he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, he's talking about pilgrims being cut down by Roman swords mm-hmm. in the temple. And Luke's gospel is very clear that the danger of a Roman invasion with all the loss of life that that would involve is hanging on the decision as to whether um, the Jewish people of Jesus' day will follow his way of peace or not. And that comes to a head in Luke 19, where those warnings are very explicit. These are not warnings about frying in hell after you die. Mm. They're warnings about the devastating destruction, which, of course, is what happened in mm. AD 70. Yeah. So we have to be careful not instantly to translate those into um, traditional pictures of hell. Um, so there's a lot of hermeneutical reading work to be done. Um, but out of all of that... Um, I think there is a sort of romantic hope within modern Christ, modern Western Christianity that that actually God is such a nice old chap that that, that he he will he will eventually say there there that's all right um, mm. and I, I feel the tug of that myself. Mm. One of my friends and colleagues where I teach now says we should all want to be universalists even if we then find we can't be and there is because we should want as an act of love that all these people we know and yeah. love would actually come to the fullness of life which God has for them. We, we ought to want that. We ought not to relish the thought, oh, yeah. so-and-so is going to hell. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll close off with this, but I, I've often felt when the person says, well, I, 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 you know, I've lived a good life and I don't think God's going to reject me when I get there. To, you know, The question is, well, for me is often, well, will you want what's on offer? Because well, we're, we're very often used to being the king of our own world, yeah. but we're yeah, yeah. being asked to enter someone else's kingdom yes, and yes. and that's a very different prospect to i don't know an eternity of yes. playing golf and, and sort of having a nice <laughs> life which i think yes. is the modern yes. very often the conception people yes. have yes. that they're being denied something that other people are being yes. given but, yes yes yeah. though though it's interesting in contemporary secular thought think of julian barnes's novel um, history of the world in ten and a half chapters which ends with a kind of a secular heaven which is so sort of nice and schmaltzy that after a little while the chap Besides, that's enough of that. <laughs> Got bored of that place. Yeah, exactly, go down exactly. There. And yeah. and so, um, be careful what you wish for, kind right. of thing. Yeah. An easy universalism might not be as easy as we imagine. Thank you very much for tackling a difficult subject. Thank you on this week's edition of the podcast. Uh, if you want more editions of the podcast, uh, do go and check them out at the website. As ever, it's askntright.com. But for now, Tom, thanks for being with me this week. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Ask N.T. Write Anything podcast. Let other people know about this show by rating and reviewing it in your podcast provider.